One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. I'm Ruth Alexander. The ornate stone pillars, the location here in the heart of London's financial district, it all says trustworthy bank. And Denmark's biggest lender, Danske Bank, was indeed one of Europe's most respected financial institutions until it found itself the subject of a criminal investigation into one of the world's biggest money laundering scandals. The suspicion is that criminals have been using the bank to turn dirty money they've made out of crime and corruption into clean cash that can be spent anywhere. It's alleged that over $200 billion of suspicious payments flowed through the Estonian branch of Danske Bank between 2007 and 2015, money that came from Russia, the British Virgin Islands and here in the UK. Well, today we've gathered together a panel of experts to explain how money laundering works. We'll be finding out how people from all walks of life, from bankers in search of a profit to cash-strapped families looking for a few extra dollars, how they all play their part in helping dodgy money look legit, sometimes without even knowing what they've done. We'll be talking about how technology is making it even harder for investigators to keep up and asking what can be done. But now let's get back to our studio and meet the panel. And here we are in the studio. Jonathan Benton is with me in London. He spent 25 years fighting financial crime and was a Scotland Yard detective superintendent. He's now director of Artemis Global Services Consultancy. And down the line is Tom Keating, the director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. Tom was an investment banker for 20 years at J.P. Morgan. In our Oxford studio is Alex Cobham, Chief Executive of the Tax Justice Network, an NGO. And in Denmark is Eleni Tsingu, Associate Professor of International Political Economy at Copenhagen Business School. Eleni, let's start with you. What do you know about what exactly has been going on at Danske Bank? So as you identify in your introduction, Danske Bank has found itself indeed in the rather unfortunate position of being at the centre of a big money laundering investigation and a big money laundering scandal. What we do know is that Danskin Bank essentially started its presence in the Baltics and in Estonia in particular, which is the branch in question in the late 2000s. It acquired a Finnish bank at the time and took on the existing Estonian branch along with all of its customers. What we also know is that at the time, the bank did not undertake a thorough review of its customer portfolio. So they didn't look into exactly who these customers were in Estonia? They took on the portfolio that existed and did not really do much more in, term of, in terms of new diligence at the time, no. It's, um, it's now thought that $200 billion in just eight years... Of, of suspicious money has flowed through this branch. You know, as much as $30 billion in just one year, 2013. Have people in Denmark been shocked by the scale of this? Absolutely. This is um, unprecedented for, for Denmark, of course, but it is also putting a lot of um, stress in what is essentially a society based on trust in the institutions, both public and private. So there's a lot of question marks about exactly how was this allowed to happen and why were not 
several signals that were clearly apparent throughout the period which is under investigation. Why were those signals not noticed or acted upon? Tom Keating, you used to work at JP Morgan. That's another big banking name that's been coming up in this investigation. That's right. And although it was five years ago, uh, this is um, this is kind of a, a rude jerk back to the uh, to the past. So, JP Morgan, a big global bank, acts as what's called a correspondent bank for banks that don't necessarily have access to the financial superhighway around the world, and in particular, don't necessarily have direct access to the US dollar. So banks like JP Morgan plug into these small banks and provide them with that access. And one of the things that we looked at back in 2012-2013 was precisely the analysis which uh, Eleni was just mentioning, which was the percentage of non-resident deposits held by banks. And for us, if a bank held a high percentage of non-resident deposits, they better know whose money that really is. Very difficult to know whose money it is when they don't actually live in the country. And so we did that analysis. The Baltics revealed themselves, not just Estonia, but Latvia as well, revealed themselves as having unusually high percentages of non-resident deposits and were unable to answer the question, just whose money are you uh, holding? Jonathan Benton, you've focused on financial crime in London, one of the world's major financial centres. Think about the scale of the problem of money laundering more, more widely. How big a problem do you think it is in London? I think it's huge now and when we look back in particular to the period when all this was happening, vast amounts of money were moving through London and that's for several reasons, partly because of the complexity of the financial centres and how they work and London's role in that and like Tom said about the financial superhighway and giving access to it. But also, London's a great place to live. It's a great place to send your kids to school, to nice private schools. It's, uh, they've got fantastic shops. And it's where people who have stolen vast amounts of money want to access it. So that's also why lots and lots of money ends up coming through and eventually arriving in London. So Freshly laundered, used. ready to yeah. spend in the, in the big shops. Alex Cobham, standing back... Can you attempt to quantify the global scale of the problem? Well, if we're thinking about the scale of assets that are held offshore, remembering that everywhere is offshore to somewhere, so simply being held in other jurisdictions and not being declared to domestic tax authorities, the best estimates we have at the low end are towards 8 or $9 trillion dollars perhaps something like 10% of global household wealth. That is a huge amount. It is, and you know, would be one of the world's biggest economies if it was to be an economy on its own, uh, quite apart from anything else. What that tells you, though, is you know, the same thing that we see in the Danske Bank story, that this isn't some marginal issue in the, uh, the edges of the global economy. This is absolutely central. We're talking about the biggest banks, the biggest economies. The Danske Bank whistleblower said the role of the United Kingdom in this is an absolute disgrace. He was referring to the fact that UK anonymously owned companies were critical to the bank accounts that were held in order to launder this money. So this wasn't just an Estonian problem or a Danish problem, or indeed a problem for JP Morgan or Deutsche Bank who provided services. It was really systemic. Why is it a problem to put your money in another country? Is that the root problem or is it more complicated than that? 
no, i think in a sense we live in a world of of globalisation and there are many potential economic benefits from the greater integration economically and financially around the world the problem is with secrecy jurisdictions when a lack of transparency in the place that you're putting the money or channeling the money allows you to hide it from the authorities in the place where you live or do your business that can be for tax purposes but also to avoid or evade all sorts of other regulations and it creates this clear injustice and set of inequalities around who is subject to taxation, who is subject to regulation and who can simply bypass it. Okay, well in this programme we we want to get into the nitty gritty of how money laundering is done. But before we do that, I want to understand who is doing it, who has got money that they want to hide and clean up. Eleni, much of the Danske Bank, uh, the suspicious transactions, much of that money is believed to have come from Russia and former Soviet countries. What, what do you know about how that money's been made? It's a little bit difficult at this stage to speculate exactly what the situation was with a particular case because we don't have we don't have the specific evidence. So, in general, however, what we do know is that. Several people, and not just oligarchs, have been uh, keen to move money out of Russia or other Soviet republics for various reasons. And increasingly, countries like the United Kingdom, other countries in the European Union, the United States, have been less and less comfortable with money originating from those countries and wanting to know a lot more about the links between the funds and and, and why is and the activities and why is that Jonathan Benton you know an, an oligarch might just be a rich person why is the money necessarily suspicious we do need to be a little bit careful because it's very easy to say billions coming from russia is all dirty money one thing i used to do probably more than a decade ago when we were dealing with this and we'd receive reports almost on a daily basis of Russian money coming into banks in London would be to try and look at the startup fund and that might sound a bit basic but essentially you, you'd have some business that really was a bit opaque and you wouldn't really understand what it was and you'd try and look behind it and understand why does it really have this value? Why does it have tens or hundreds of millions in, in accounts? What and kind of business would this in, be? In, it, it could be anything from shipping to all the way through to uh, engineering, land, property, companies. It, and what would get your antennae going was that perhaps there seemed to be just too much money in that business's bank account, given the amount of business activity it was doing? There's a legitimate reason for companies to have complex structures across the globe because of the way they operate. But what happens is these guys who want to launder vast amounts of money copy exactly that and set that exactly. So, so it's quite diff- what's often quite difficult is when you get to the core of looking at where the money came from, maybe three, four, five, six years ago, that's when it becomes very, very opaque and difficult to understand. And that's when you've got to get back and pierce through the kind of layers of the the onion and layer by layer by layer and get to the core. And you might get to some sort of business that's operating in Russia. And frankly, it's very difficult to lift the lid. So it's also important to think about what the state of the economy is and where where this money comes from. So if you think about it, you know, the Russian economy 
collapsed in 1998 with their default. So if you were holding money in, in Russian assets, you didn't really want to continue holding your money in Russian assets because they weren't trustworthy. So I think a lot of money moved offshore looking for places where value could be stored reliably. Some of that money was dirty, but a lot of it wasn't. And so I think one does have to be careful not to assume that every pound that ends up in London from somewhere else is the result of money laundering. And of course, the criminals that do launder money are not only in Russia or former Soviet countries. Let's look at an example of how money laundering is carried out at a grassroots level in Colombia. Colombian cocaine production hit record levels in 2017, according to United Nations statistics. And this meant that the drug cartels have had an awful lot of money to clean up and they're having to recruit a lot of foot soldiers to help them do that I've been learning. I've been talking about how they do this and the huge scale of the racket with Eric Bihar, the Dean of Economy at the Central University of Columbia. We uh, calculate that the size of the money laundering economy is approximately 1-3% to of our GDP. That's around 2-6 to billion US dollars. If you consider that pretty much 70% of the money that comes from crime, whether whether it's drug trafficking or smuggling, etc., is injected into this shadow economy. How is that money injected? How does money laundering work? Well, it works in different ways. We can start with this uh, typical concept that we use here to analyze it. We call it smurfing, just like the Smurfs. The cartoon, cartoon characters, little blue from the cartoon, cartoon character. Exactly, because they're small. You have this colony of Smurfs. This means that you distribute the money all over the the economy with all the little Smurfs so you cannot really trace it because nobody has the money in, in, let's say, in a big load. It's just everybody who has a little bit of it. The money that comes from illegal uh, business or from drug trafficking is injected in the economy in various ways in very, very little businesses, and it's basically... Uh, injected as ghost money that disappears throughout the economy and cannot be traced back again. But the main channels that criminals use to inject money into the economy is, first of all, through the financial system, then through normal smuggling. A new one is through Bitcoin and uh, parallel financial transactions with the cryptocurrency, and also through remittances. But let's look at an example, if you want a very, very simple example. Imagine that you have a savings account or that you have a checkings account and uh, somebody comes up to you and tells you, hey, I have a good business for you. You have nothing to lose. I will give you $10,000 and I'm going to deposit this money into your account and then I'm going to give you a commission if you withdraw it again and give it to somebody else. And so the person gets a $500 commission, for example, but then the problem begins because a second person calls the citizen he says to him, hey, you have this money, this belongs to me, not to the other person. So I need this money right now. So a whole extortion process begins. And then the person has to withdraw the money and give this money to, to the criminal. Then the money is cleaned this way. And uh, the responsible person for the financial transaction is the owner of the checkings account. But the criminal has no problem anymore because the money has been cleaned. We found approximately 140 different ways in which smurfing is carried out. The one that I mentioned is just one single example, but there's a ton of examples um, in which money laundering is carried out. But who are the willing people who are doing this, who are taking the money and putting it through into an ordinary bank account and and cleaning it for the criminals? 
in general, it's people who have no consciousness of the risk that they're undergoing and they believe that it's easy money. And it might be people that do not have enough income, so they feel that complementing their income by a, a very simple business is not going to be a problem. So it's basically people who do not have opportunities and who, as we say in Spanish, are in the base of the pyramid. Colombian drugs barons and others around the world are also able to make use of more sophisticated company structures to get large sums of money into reputable banks without anyone knowing. Let's find out how they do that. Tom Keating, can you just walk us through the process step by step? The way that people typically think about this is through three stages, placement, layering and, and integration. Placement of the funds into the financial system, perhaps through a mule account, as your interviewee was just saying, layering it, so you know, mixing it in you know, as if you were creating a cake, and then integrating it into the system in such a way that you can then use it how do you um, mean, legitimately. How do you mean layering? You mean getting lots and lots and lots of accounts, so you get a vast amount of money into the system f- f- by breaking it up into small amounts? Either that or using, uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, shell companies, for example. So these kind of Russian doll of companies, companies owning companies that own companies. So you can really not determine who the ultimate beneficial owner is of, of the company and who is the owner of the value that is in those companies. So it's a game of obfuscation. And the way that legislation works around the world facilitates obfuscation because it's difficult to share information between countries. I'm sure John had a terribly infuriating time in in his career as a police officer trying to get information from different countries to investigate money laundering because we are our own worst enemies when it comes to collaborating to identify who this money belongs to and where it came from and what predicate offence, what criminal act was committed in order to earn that money. Jonathan Benton. This is a complex subject, but the reality is the criminals are some way ahead of those enforcers and prosecutors around the globe that are trying to prevent this from happening and dealing with the uh, the consequences. Well, we want to come on to that later yeah. in the programme. But first of all, let's just stay with this idea of shell companies mm-hmm. and how you set up a chain of companies to funnel your cash through. Alex... Coburn, how is that done? Unfortunately, with enormous ease in a great many jurisdictions around the world, we are in a position where finally, perhaps, finally, perhaps we're seeing a shift in an emerging international standard that the beneficial ownership, that's the the warm-blooded human being behind a company or a trust or a foundation, should actually be publicly recorded. Because up until now, it's been perfectly possible in different places around the world to set up a company and put in in place as, as the named owner, not yourself, but a nominee director. And then, then you, the criminal, can stay behind in the shadows. You can be telling the nominee director how you want the company run, where you want it to put its money, but officials won't see your name on the company list. Is that right? Um, that's certainly true. There's also a range of jurisdictions where that information, whether it's a real director or a nominee director, wouldn't be recorded, or if it was recorded, wouldn't be in the public domain and therefore wouldn't be checked. Where isn't it recorded? 
Uh, well, unfortunately, a great many places stick to this this position that you don't need a central register, even a private register of beneficial ownership. That information can be held by the company formation agents. You know, as we saw in the the Panama Papers, for example, each time Mossack Fonseca received a request from law enforcement to reveal who was behind the company as the company formation agent, it would set off this chain of emails and discussions about whether they would give the information, whether they would change the information before they gave it, whether they would try and ignore it, whether they would, you know, which way they would find to avoid giving the information if they thought the information they had was real, which, of course, sometimes they knew very well uh, it wasn't. Many of these places are tax havens, and, and I'm sure people listening will think, you know, why is this still allowed to happen? Why do they still exist? But I've been talking to James Quamby. He's a tax and trust lawyer at Stevenson Harwood in London, Let's say I'm in the UK and I want to set up a British Virgin Islands company. So I go to a provider. They have a verifiable register of beneficial ownership. And I want to stress the word verifiable. I have to prove who I am. That's that's copies of passport, my address. I have to prove where the funds have come from. And that list is maintained by the government of the British Virgin Islands and is shared with taxation authorities across the world. Now, let's compare that to me setting up a company in the UK. I go online to company's house, I pay £40, and I get a company within 24 hours. No verification of identity, no one checking anything. Now, although the UK has brought in a public register of beneficial ownership of companies, that is not verified. So if I decide to set up a company and issue the shares to someone and then put that on company's registry, no one's checking it. The fact is, if I want to do money laundering, I'm probably going to want to do it in a country where it's easy to set up a company rather than really difficult. And that's one of the myths about money laundering is that it's not actually done in the the offshore tax havens, as you call them. The money laundering actually happens in the source jurisdictions. That will be Europe or States or South America or India. The money's got to get through the local banking system before it hits the banking system in the offshore financial centres because those have been so regulated, it's hard to do anything without proving source of funds. So uh, that's James Quamby. Alex Cobham, is he right? <laughs> he's, he's dangerously half right. I mean, where he's right is to say that the UK's um, uh, register of beneficial ownership is problematic because the information is not verified. That is certainly true. However, the private verification that a BVI or a Jersey, for example, offers does not come close to the value of a public register. It may be the case that the information that is privately held and sometimes provided to some other tax and law authorities under certain circumstances is good information, but we just don't know. You can look at the British uh, Register and find, for example, a small house in Edinburgh with 15,000 companies set up largely in Baltic regions. And that's the kind of information that lets you see the patterns, lets you start investigating. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at money laundering. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't ever miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story. Or if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into, you can email us. We're at therealstory 
at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Ruth Alexander, looking at money laundering. And in the studio, I'm joined by Jonathan Benton, a former Scotland Yard detective superintendent, now director of Artemis Global Services Consultancy. Down the line is Tom Keating, the director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. He was also an investment banker with JP Morgan for 20 years. Alex Cobham is in our Oxford studio. He's chief executive of the Tax Justice Network, an NGO, and Delaney Singu, associate professor of international political economy at Copenhagen Business School. Now, we've been talking about the complexity of companies that are set up by criminals who are trying to launder money. Jonathan Benton, is your time as a policeman looking at this, what kind of extraordinary setups did you find? So the reality is what often happens is a cohort of corrupt criminal people will be working in concert together. So a very good example, albeit um, a little old now, is that of a former state governor called James Ibori from Nigeria, case very well known. Uh, James had a he he had a corrupt professional uh, again a man who's been convicted called Badrashko Hill from London who uh, ironically was the money laundering reporting officer for his firm who laundered the money and set up the companies on his behalf and to, to give you an idea of the complexity of what they did in order to avoid and evade detection there were hundreds of companies set up Delaware knew who. BVI, Cayman, and all those jurisdictions, UK, and that with, with excuses for why they were operating and the, the source of their funds and what they were doing. Um, and these were all places, even Delaware, a state in the United States, places where you can set up a company and it's very opaque about who owns that company. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and opaque, uh, one, one example not just to the opaque sort of ownership of the company, but what has to happen is the company has to have a a reason for operating. What's its business? Because that's the rationale that's given to the bank to move the money. The company's useless on its own. It needs a pipeline. It needs the highway, like Tom said, to get the money out. And and when James Abori wanted to buy a bombardier jet because his fellow state governors were all had lovely private jets, and he well, everyone's got to have one. Exactly. He, I mean, he, the companies were set up. Well, one of them, MER Engineering, you know, and the excuse was it was uh, working in the field of uh, aviation parts. It didn't sell or move or produce or anything in aviation parts in its in its lifetime what it did was launder money um so it could move to bombardier to purchase the jet it's that and how did it do that was that was it passing money to another company and on to another company and on to another company yeah so so it comes through uh, uh, my sort of onion analogy these layers these different layers it comes through these different layers which are all companies in the chain of business and and that then becomes quite difficult for the banks to be able to penetrate into it and understand who it is. That's made particularly difficult when you have a professional, a lawyer, who, who's setting out to professionals why a deal is happening and what the rationale for the money's moving. And, and what you find is 
just as difficult as it is for law enforcement to understand who's behind the no BVI companies and so on, it's equally difficult for B- the bank. BVI being British Virgin Islands and offshore yeah, 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 tax yeah. haven. But, but London as well. Don't, don't Let's not forget the UK because we play a part in this and it, it, you know, it either companies registered here and come in, money coming back here or, or so on. Well, um, we've been hearing that trillions of dollars of criminal money is making its way into the world's financial system every year, into even places like London, which you'd think would be upholding a much stricter standards. So the question is, what can be done about it? I've been talking to Elise Bean, who worked as a legal counsel to Senator Carl Levin on the US Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee for 15 years. During that time, she handled a variety of investigations into financial abuses like money laundering. In fact, it was all so eye-opening, she ended up writing a book about it, Financial Exposure. When we first started out, what really struck me was how much wrongdoing was going on. Uh, We were seeing instances of bags of cash being brought into U.S. banks. Bags of cash. So Mr. Obiang, who was the head of Equatorial Guinea, uh, on two occasions had $3 million brought in in suitcases to Riggs Bank here in Washington, D.C. Bank asked virtually no questions. They uh, counted out the cash and deposited it uh, to either his wife's account Uh, The bank had also set up an offshore shell company for him called Otong, and they put money in that account as well and eventually took about $13 million in cash. That was one bank. Was that acting, was that a complete outlier, acting outrageously, or, or was that okay back then? Banks were accepting a lot of cash with no questions asked. One of the problems back then is it was not against the law for a U.S. bank to accept cash from abroad, even cash that seems suspect as long as all the wrongdoing took place outside of the United States. So we were essentially becoming bankers for corrupt government officials around the world. Banks were creating shell companies, offshore shell companies for their clients, creating hidden accounts, and moving millions of dollars across international lines uh, without anybody knowing what was going on. So lots of new rules were created. Um, Was that it then? Money laundering just stopped? Of course not. And in fact, in 2004, we did a series of hearings looking at how the federal government was enforcing those new laws. And surprise, surprise, we found that they were not doing a very good job. And that's continued. Uh, We had a hearing in 2012 on HSBC showing a lot of the problems that they had. One of their big issues is they had affiliates around the world in 80 different countries, and they were opening up accounts at their U.S. bank with, again, no questions asked. Among the allegations was that U.S. and Mexican drugs barons were were using HSBC to launder money. So we traced $7 billion in cash that came from their Mexican affiliate into the U.S. bank, and law enforcement was convinced that that included drug money. HSBC admitted to wrongdoing. They admitted to taking $800 million in drug money. Looking at the US, I think people might find it somewhat puzzling to work out what what's going on and what, what the government's attitude to money laundering and financial crime really is. Because you've had these big investigations into big-name banks, but then there are also states in the US where it's perfectly easy to set up a company where it's not clear who owns that company and no questions are really asked. 
which of course helps money laundering go on in, inside the US. It's a, it's a place to put your dodgy money and, 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 and get it get it cleaned. Well, the United States seems to be schizophrenic on the problem. Uh, law enforcement is very intense on money laundering issues. They do the biggest cases, the cases with the most money, the cases with the biggest impact. And at the same time, they're the biggest offender in the world when it comes to corporations with hidden owners. So uh, the United States, um, you know, they, as I say, they're, they're inconsistent. In some ways, they are among the best in the world in terms of trying to go after money laundering. But in the area of beneficial ownership and corporate transparency, they're among the worst in the world. So if I was a criminal and I had uh, tens of millions of dollars of ill-gotten gains, I might look to the U.S. to put that money. That's true, and it's getting worse. As other countries clean up, as the U.K. and the E.U. clean up, uh, and criminals are having a tougher time getting companies with hidden ownership there, where do they go to look for those kinds of companies with that kind of secrecy? The United States is currently their best bet. Tom Keating, you used to work for an American bank. Um, and how do you reflect on that, that the US could be a great place for a criminal to put their dirty money? I like the description of the US as um, schizophrenic. I remember when I worked on the Panama Papers, we were always expecting to find uh, something uh, connecting uh, the story to the US. And then someone pointed out, well, actually, no, you know, the US doesn't need to use places like Panama because it's got all these states. You mentioned Delaware earlier on, but there are plenty of others that provide the kind of anonymity that money launderers uh, and corrupt officials require. I think the US has a, a, a very strong case to answer. It is the global policeman when it comes to anti-money laundering. It's really the US which is leading the charge uh, on investigating the Danske case, for example, that we referred to earlier. And there are plenty of rules that should stop money laundering, and the, yet they don't. Why the, not? The, there are plenty of rules. I think part of the, the, part of the, the challenge is that, as we've been discussing, Money laundering is, is complicated. It uses complicated systems. It uses the financial system. The question is, and perhaps a question that John could answer, to what extent do law enforcement officials understand financial crime beyond the exchange of bags of cash in, in a car park? Because the kind of financial engineering we're talking about here that happens in you know towers in Canary Wharf and in London and, and elsewhere is highly complex. It's highly complicated. Uh, people get paid a lot of money to do that kind of engineering, and it's very difficult to unravel. And so you can have whatever laws you want, but the smart brains, I'm afraid, will always find a way of circumventing those laws if uh, they are incentivized to do so. And Jonathan Benton, is that a problem, that it's hard to recruit enough specialists who understand these highly complex company structures and ways of doing money laundering? So by way of example, in my last role, I was leading the UK's uh, battle, for want of a better term, and it was really, to tackle illicit money flows, grand corruption and bribery um, offences that happened outside the UK and, and money coming through the UK. We had, at the time, roughly 20 highly trained, very, very, very good financial investigators if we look at the kind of biggest police force in the UK, which is the Metropolitan Police, there's 243 financial investigators there. Of those 243, only a small number, realistically, would have the necessary experience 
and ability to try and tackle some of these very, very, very complex cases. And the point is there'd be many more criminals who are trying to launder money. Uh, I I just want to go to Eleni Singu. In the case of HSBC back in 2012, the the bank was fined $2 billion. That might seem like a large amount. But no officials were charged. Do you think that personal liability would make a difference if people in banks were going to be charged personally for letting money laundry happen? This is indeed a big question, and it's something that has been understandably resisted a great deal so far because, of course, people want to be comfortable in doing, in doing their job. It should also be, we should stress here that a bank is not fined for actually engaging in money laundering. It's fined usually because it has failed in having the right processes in place or in actually following its own processes and therefore allowing risky things to happen without raising the alarm. So authorities are not expecting money laundering to disappear, but they would like banks to do what they say they are supposed to be doing and what they say they are doing a lot of the time. And this is something that is missing. And this is where the question of personal liability then becomes really crucial. Because one thing that is um, is quite significant here is that in the past 10 years, resources when it comes to anti-money laundering compliance issues have gone up. So the regulatory expectation that there has to be, that those processes need to be in place is quite reasonable in a way that perhaps it was unreasonable in some of the cases that, or not unreasonable, but in a way that perhaps it was a little bit optimistic in some of the cases that uh, Elise Bean described from uh, Riggs Bank and, um, you know, sort of more than 15, 20 years ago. But um, what about the question of holding individuals Responsible. I mean, are people in Denmark expecting that high up executives in Danske Bank will have to pay for any mistakes, oversights that were made? There are two sides to this. The one side is that, of course, at the popular level and the public debate level, there is a lack of understanding as to why is it that individuals are not personally liable when something like this happens. Again, this is not a case where the most sophisticated technologies or the most recent uh, developments in financial engineering are involved. It's, it's a much simpler case of, uh, of money laundering, quite old school in some ways. So it is very difficult for the public at large to understand why those people are not responsible. And why are they not responsible? Because the legal framework as it stands up until now does not determine that there has been legal liability. That may yet change because the investigation is ongoing. Tom Keating, one of the arguments is that, well, you know, banking people might become too scared to do their jobs properly, too scared to take a risk which needs to happen in banking. Yeah, I mean, I I would add, I'm sure I sat through lots of compliance sessions in my 20 years at JP Morgan, but the only ones I remember are the ones where they said, and by the way, the rules have changed in such a way that you can now go to jail. I think in hindsight, I, frankly, I needn't have been worried because the number of bankers who've been jailed for this kind of activity is is vanishingly small. I think the, the point that you make is an important one, though, which is that banks have become increasingly uh, risk averse. They have used the sort of the fear of financial crime as a way of reducing their client base, perhaps deciding that it's a good excuse not to deal with customers like charities and, and others who are not particularly profitable. But we have seen over the last five to 10 years, a wholesale reappraisal of what uh, sort of customers banks want to to have. And inevitably, things like financial inclusion, the, the disadvantaged, vulnerable, fragile parts of the world 
have lost out as a result of this drive to raise standards. Yeah, can I just add, though, as well, I think... um The whole thing, we had it in the UK after the financial crisis, politicians wanting bankers' heads on stakes, basically, outside Parliament, if they could, if that was possible. And, of course, it never happened. Um, One of the internal issues, as I see it now, talking to clients and and, and working with banks, is this, this whole challenge with whistleblowers. And they've seen publicly where the kind of really high profile whistleblowers have come out and spoken out. They've been absolutely placed in incommunicado. They, 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 there's one example of, a, of um, a whistleblower in the last couple of years who spoke out about uh, vast amounts of money laundering in one of the big international banks. And he can no longer be employed in the banking sector. It's gone. He, he can go nowhere. He he's he feels that uh, that actually his whole career in banking has come to an end because he was prepared to stand up and speak out. So the culture is such that it is much safer for an individual to keep quiet, to turn a blind eye to anything that looks a bit suspicious to them. And Alex Cobham, you know, banks are there to make money. It's their raison d'etre, isn't it? To what degree do you think that that is also causing the blind eye to be turned in in many cases that you know okay this money might be dirty but there's a lot of it and as happened at Danske Bank you can make hefty profits from it. Well I mean I think it's certainly true that there is a, a democratic issue here everyone likes a winner and when the banks have lots of money they tend to find that lots of their senior staff end up employed in roles with government and or among major donors to political parties. But set that aside, because I think you know we can think about the actual measures in place. The discussion we've just had is, is fascinating. The difference between the human treatment of bankers, the point Tom made about how it focuses the mind if you know that there's a potential for you to go to jail, as opposed to just a fine for the bank as a, a cost of doing business, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the human costs that we continue to impose on whistleblowers because we do not protect either their whistleblowing or their subsequent um, life experience. It shows you very clearly how the human decisions underneath this are not happening randomly. They're systematically biased against disclosure, against uncovering the truth, and indeed against behaving properly. So there's a lot that we can do to shift that balance somewhere back towards the middle, alongside, of course, a set of technical measures like public registers of beneficial ownership that put a lot more of this in the public domain and shift perhaps the sense of accountability of the professionals who are involved in enabling this. A complicating factor is that, of course, the world doesn't stand still and um, technology is revolutionising money, just as it has many other areas of life. The word Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, came up when we were talking about Colombia. Tom Keating, to what extent is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies going to make it more or less difficult for the authorities to track where money is coming from and where it's going. So John talked earlier about sort of peeling the onion and the the layers of companies and so on. I think what we see in cyberspace with cryptocurrencies of of various sorts is a virtual onion uh, being created. Some virtual currencies like Bitcoin are pseudonymous, so you can trace who's paying whom. But there are myriad ways of obfuscating uh, your footprints in, in cyberspace through lots of different techniques, through privacy coins, through tumblers, through atomic swaps, you know, the vocabulary is endless. And I think it makes it increasingly difficult for 
law enforcement and indeed for banks, because at some point somebody needs to turn their virtual wealth into real wealth so they can buy the, the real estate or the, the yacht, it makes it increasingly difficult for them to operate. Now, at the moment, I think Europol thinks that 3 or 4% of money laundered in the European Union is through virtual currencies, but it's not going to stay at 3 or 4% for very long. It's an obvious tool to use. Well, I, I know that authorities, the, the European Union, for example, are, are drawing up new regulations that cryptocurrency platforms and exchanges will have to adhere to. If they do stick to it, could it be that these digital currencies actually make it easier to track money because there is a digital trail? Eleni? That is one area of optimism, I guess, among the community. But I would say that at this stage, from where I'm standing, knowledge and understanding of the potential and of the the technical day-to-day of, of the implications is very sparse. Uh, you see a lot of um, regulators sitting in a room uh, talking about things that they barely understand. And I'm not quite sure yet that we are ready to take the next step in, in terms of saying, yes, this is the way forward in terms of dealing with secrecy and therefore dealing with, uh, with financial crime when it comes to uh, banking. Jonathan, you must have sympathy for those regulators. You, you must be pleased that, that you're no longer a detective having to get your head around cryptocurrencies. I think it's back to Tom, Tom's point earlier when he asked the question of um, how many people really understand this. What, what's your capability? And, and I do, and I look at it and think there's a vast, it's a huge mountain to climb. I, I, I was only talking to some of my former staff uh, the other day. Do they um, understand and, Bitcoin and how yeah, it works? And there's one detective... And, and I think one, 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 detective. one detective that they've uh, sent on specialist training and all credit to Scotland Yard, they, they've invested in this individual. And, well, it's and a start, but I mean, one, if, 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 as Tom was saying, that, you know, that, that this is an area of money laundering is going to grow quickly while the criminals will be way ahead, is there a risk that technology and cryptocurrencies develop to a point where... The police just can't keep up with the money. There's, there are a huge number of problems here because not least the fact that, uh, like I think Tom said earlier about the way banks and the laws and the way they work in their essential bubbles around the world, can't share information with each other, can't, the, the police law enforcement are exactly the same and trying to work across multi-jurisdictions is very, very difficult. It's... it's I find it quite. I find it very surprising coming out into work in the private sector as to how easily it is to be mobile and work across many jurisdictions. Policing just cannot do that. Now take that to cyberspace and not really understanding where it may be operating. We can't even keep up with and really manage the cooperation that needs to take place across multiple jurisdictions. We're a decade or more behind, I think, on, on, in the cyber uh, space and the ability to try and keep pace. Well, one thing for sure is that it, it's, a, it's a growing problem and one that the authorities, the police, the banks, the regulators will be trying to keep pace with. So can I just ask you all, what one thing would you like to happen that could make a difference? Alex Cobham. The Financial Action Task Force is in the process of reviewing the UK's register of beneficial ownership. 
it is likely, although it will highlight the issues of verification, it is likely to be broadly positive. What it should do is say, this is going to become the international standard that jurisdictions around the world need public registers of beneficial ownership of companies, trusts and foundations. Eleni, um, I'll stop you there. Eleni Tsingu. I would focus on the corporate governance structure within banking institutions in first instance and making sure that all this investment that has gone into compliance and the resources that have gone into compliance, that the reporting lines are really, really strong and that when someone is is willing to stick their neck out, there is support within the financial institution and then support elsewhere for them to do so. Tom Keating, what do you think needs to be done? All money, dirty and clean, flows across borders seamlessly. The response, the cops in pursuit have to stop at the border. And if we can't facilitate the sharing of information across borders, the criminals will win and we might as well give up. And let's go to our next cop for the final word, Jonathan Benton. I'd take it uh, a step back from that in as much as I would also say the front line of a lot of this is really the banks that are moving money out right next door to very high-risk locations where there's wars going on, etc. in Africa. And the challenge here is the the rules are vastly the same, but the level, the capability, the governance, the the ability to do the KYC... The know-your customer, customer rules. ...in Kenya versus the, the ability that sits in Canary Wharf in London. There's a huge gulf between them. And, and, and they start... Until we get, like, a global standard of the front line in banking, and there's one bank in particular, Standard Charter, doing a lot of work on the ground with local banks, saying this, this is how you need to do it, this is how you do KYC... That, that's the start. That's the first defence line until we get there. We're in trouble. So you also want more global cooperation. Well, that's it for this week on The Real Story, looking at money laundering. Thanks to our guests, Jonathan Benton, Alex Cobham, Tom Keating and Eleni Singu. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. If you like this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Ruth Alexander and the team, that is The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.